0: like to look today at the fourth message in our series on the doctrine of grace. Uh, the first message we looked at was the total depravity of man. We then looked at the unconditional election of God, the limited atonement or the particular redemption made by Jesus Christ. Whenever we consider the subject of salvation, the religious world around us, sincere as they are, uh, may be limited in their understanding of what this subject means. It's common to ask somebody, have you been saved, or are you born again, or do you know that you're going to heaven? That's, that's it's fairly common wherever you go outside the walls of, of Primitive Baptist Church. It's very common for someone to say, yes, I know I am saved because I was baptized. Or I know that I am saved because I accepted Jesus. The reality of salvation is not that it is something that you did one day in history past. It is true that salvation... Well let me let me let me make it this let me make it this point Each member of the godhead is responsible for the salvation of god's people Number 1 God chose us in Christ before the world began that's election Jesus Christ died for everyone that god chose That's redemption. Today we will look at irresistible grace, or what is commonly called the new birth. That is the responsibility of the Holy Ghost. You see, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, "Go you therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Baptism is something that is done in the name of all three persons giving honor to all three persons because all three persons in the Godhead are responsible in some way for your salvation. The reality of salvation is is that salvation will not be fully accomplished until you stand body, body, Soul and spirit in the presence of God. You can turn to Romans chapter 8 uh, for proof of this. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 23, it says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. See that? We're waiting for something in life. What are we waiting for? The redemption of our body. Our body being brought out of the grave, united with our soul and spirit, and forever living with the Lord notice in there there in Romans 20 Romans 8 no, you're there in Romans 8 notice verse 30 moreover whom he did predestinate that's election before the world began whom he did predestinate them he also called that's what we will discuss today irresistible grace whom he called them he also justified That's the death of Christ. And whom He justified, this is the last thing, them He also glorified. You see, everybody elected were died for by Christ. Everybody who was died for by Christ will be regenerated by the Holy Ghost. And everybody elected, died for, and regenerated will be glorified in heaven Without the loss of one. That is salvation. It is the fact that one day. We will stand before God. Holy. And without blame. Before him. In love. You see the election. That God made. And the redemption. That Christ performed. Do not complete the work. The new birth also needs to be considered in this subject. And that's what we intend to do today. Today we will look at uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the giving of life. Now, our text this morning will begin in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. But for a moment we will ask this question. What is irresistible grace to define this doctrine we would say that the doctrine of irresistible grace asserts that the holy spirit never fails to bring to salvation those sinners whom he personally calls to christ it may be a bit of a strange thing to many in the world around us But we actually believe that the Holy Spirit personally, actively calls people to salvation. I personally believe, we personally believe that the Holy Spirit calls men into the ministry. We believe that that is a gift that comes from God. Not a decision that somebody in the congregation decides, I think I'll get up and I'll preach. We believe that this is a gift, a calling from God. Many people around us have the idea that if anybody in the congregation wants to preach, well, he can just stand up and we'll let him be the preacher. Well, any of you men in here should have the ability to stand up and give a good talk. You should have the ability to stand up and defend what you believe. But God told us in Ephesians that he put in the church evangelists, apostles, Prophets, pastors, and teachers. That is a personal call from God Himself. The new birth is no different. It is a personal call from God Himself. Irresistible grace, when used of the grace of God toward His elect, means that God of His own free will gives life to whom He chooses. The living human spirit that God creates in a man is drawn to God or finds God completely irresistible. Wicked men who are not born of the Spirit don't care about God. Wicked men who are not born of the Spirit, you find them gravitating towards wickedness in this world. Because the wickedness that is in them is drawn to wickedness. But therefore, because of irresistible grace, because of the grace that God puts in you, you are drawn irresistibly to Christ. You find Him absolutely irresistible. The Holy Spirit, in order to bring God's elect to salvation... Extend to them a special, personal, inward call. In John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus makes this statement. He says in John chapter 3 and verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth. The term listeth here means pleases. The wind blows where it pleases. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. This text simply means that in the natural world, we'd ever see the wind. You ever, say anybody, you ever heard anybody say, hey, come out here and look at the wind. Well, you might say that, but that's not really what you mean. You can look out the window. You're not really going to see the wind, but what you're going to see is you're going to see the evidence of the wind. You're going to see the leaves blowing. You're going to see the trees swaying back and forth. You see the sheets popping on the line that are outside. You never see the wind itself, but what you see is the evidence of the moving of the wind in the life of a person born of God. What you see is the evidence of God moving in their life. See, the wind in the Bible is often compared to the moving of the Spirit itself. You and I cannot direct the wind that blows outside, we can't make it blow, we can't stop it from blowing. Of course now there have been some times uh, on some of these hot days i like to have turned it on and then there have been some times on some of these cold days i'd like to have turned it off but it blows where and when it wants to right i mean that's a that's a physical principle why would the god who created the wind be any different he blows where he wants to he blows when he wants to and the text says here, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. I'd like for you to notice here that everyone that is born of the Spirit is born the same way. They are born by the moving of the Spirit of God. They are not saved because they are under some mythical age of accountability. They are not saved because they are mentally incapable of comprehending the gospel. They are not saved because they are some uh, foreigner in a strange land who's never heard the gospel. And so they get to go because of ignorance. You're not saved because of all these little bitty, itty things that don't fit into men's religion. You see... What I'm attempting to establish before you is that there is complete harmony in the Godhead when it comes to the concept of salvation. That God elected a people, Christ died for that people, the Holy Spirit regenerated that people, and that people will be in heaven. There's complete harmony in there. Everybody is on the same page. You say, well, doesn't everybody believe that? No, everybody doesn't believe that. If God wants the whole human race to be saved and Christ died for the whole human race first off who in the Old Testament had any concept of a Messiah? Who in the Old Testament had any concept of sin and that they needed a Savior? The Philistines didn't. The Amorites didn't. The Jebusites didn't. The pagan nations knew nothing about this. So if God wanted them to be saved, why did He limit the gospel to only the Israelites? I mean, isn't that a reasonable question? Oh, well, God had something special for folks under the Old Testament. No. Everyone that's born of God is born the same way. But if God wants everybody to be saved... And Christ died for everybody. There's disharmony. Is that a word? There's disagreement. There's disagreement because the Holy Spirit is only going to regenerate those who accept Him. Or those few who are baptized. Or those few who live faithful unto the end. You see the, you see the disagreement in that? God wants everybody, Jesus wants everybody, but the Holy Spirit's going to limit it to just a few. That's disagreement. We gave you the illustration a couple of weeks ago about the prison cell. That the whole human race was as in a jail. And Jesus Christ came along and He opened the doors to everybody. But the only people that walk out are the elect of God. That God had elected a people, but Christ died for everybody... So that when we open the doors, those who stayed in, stayed in of their own free will. Disagreement. The only way you can have true unity and true harmony is that all three are working together as one to accomplish a single task. The wind blows where it pleases. It blows upon those whom it pleases. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. Now, it's it's common. It's common in religious circles around us. As we said earlier, that people ask you, Have you been saved? Or have you been born again? People know that term. What they don't realize is when you read the New Testament... There are at least nine different terms in the Scriptures that describe this subject of irresistible grace or this topic of being born again. I'm going to give them to you here. They are not the same. These nine topics, these nine words that I'm going to give to you are not the same. But when we get done, hopefully we'll see a common theme throughout all of them. The first one that you can find is in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. The first one is called a creation. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, the nine that I've laid out here, you may have sort of a different way of listing them, but I've simply laid them out in somewhat of a logical standpoint. The very first thing that happened was God created the world, correct? That's the first thing that happened. He created the world. Is is there anything in that creation that argued with God? Is there anything in that creation that cooperated with God? Is there anything that God said, I would like to create you, and that thing said, hold on, I'll get back to you on that. Now, we understand that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What we are described in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10, as a creation. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The next thing that happened in creation is what we might would call a birth. And I've already read to you here in uh, John 3 8 uh, that the Spirit moves where it listeth. But in John 3 5, Jesus says, Marvel not, or Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In verse 3, it said, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot, or except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here, a birth is described as number one being that which allows you to see the kingdom, and number two, that which allows you to enter the kingdom. So if a man is not born again, he can't even see the kingdom. So if he's not born again, how can I preach the gospel so simply that he'd want to be born again? Does that make sense? He doesn't see the need of any of this. It's the new birth that allows him to see that. After God created the world, what did He do with man? It says that He created out of the dust man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The, the creation and we might would say the birth of Adam was not because Adam cooperated with God. It was not because God and Adam got together and this occurred. No, God did it. And it's the same way even now. Uh, The third term that we'd like to look at is a term called circumcision. Circumcision. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 29, it says, But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter." whose praise is not of men, but of God. The circumcision that's under consideration in Romans chapter 2, he says, is not circumcision in the flesh. Even though they are a parallel, this circumcision is not in the flesh. This circumcision is in the heart. It is a circumcision not done with the hands of men. It is a circumcision done by the Spirit of God. There's a, there a cutting away of something and a leaving of something new is essentially what that is. Number four is the term translation. We've looked at creation, birth, circumcision, now translation. In Colossians chapter one verse thirteen, there's proof text for this. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, uh, the first word says who, that's God, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So God's done what? He delivered us from one thing and put us somewhere else. He delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Number five is the term quickening. Quickening. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And in the Bible, the term quicken does not mean fast. The term quick means alive. So, for example, have you ever, you ever cut your fingernail? And you cut it down into to this little meaty part, portion right here and it just really, really hurts. Pe- old folks used to call that the quick of the finger. You cut it down into the quick. It means it's the living part. It's where the nerves are. God has quickened you. He's made you alive who were previously dead in trespasses and in sins. Number six is a passing from death unto life. Notice in John chapter 5, actually the next two will be right here in John chapter 5. One is in verse 24, second is in verse 25, they're back to back. In John chapter 5 and verse 24, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, everlasting life notice what that text says by the way since we're sitting here meditating on this it does not say that he that heareth my word and will believe will get eternal life you see that it says that the man that hears and the man that believes already has eternal life he hears and believes because he has life He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. But is passed from death unto life. He has he is passed from death unto life. So, you know, we we would often say someone in this life has passed away. Dear sister in the church uh here in our in Birmingham, Sister Cheetah Blakely passed away this week. Mother of you know Gavin Blakely and uh, Elder Jonathan Blakely, we offer our condolences to their family. But she's not passed really from life into death. I mean, she's not alive here anymore. But really, what she has done is she has passed from this dead world into the living presence of God. She has elevated. From where she was to where she is now. The new birth. The irresistible grace of God. Is that which brings you from death into life. And then notice verse 25. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you. The hour is coming and now is. Now that phrase right there is very important in this. He says, the hour is coming and And now is. You catch that? There is something that is coming, but there is also something that is occurring right now. In other words, what is occurring right now is going to continue to occur. The hour is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the words of God preached by the preacher. That's not what that text says, is it? The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. That to me is describing a resurrection. Because Jesus goes on to say there in the fifth chapter of John. He said, marvel not that I say unto thee this. He says, the hour is coming when they that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. We know that's the resurrection. We know at the last day, bodies in the graves will hear His voice and shall come out of those graves and be made alive. That's what that text means. He said in the same manner that at the last day, the dead in the graves shall hear His voice. In the same manner, those that are dead in sin will hear His voice. So if it takes the voice of the preacher to convince you now to be saved and be alive, then it's going to take the voice of the preacher to raise the dead at the last day. Going to be any preachers at that time raising the dead? No, preachers probably dead themselves. The same voice that raises us from dead in the grave is the same voice that's going to raise us from dead in sin. It's the voice of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that voice is not the reading of this book. Because this book is not the voice of God. This book is the words of God. I can read to you the words of God all day long. But it takes God to give you the voice of God. So we had a passing from death and a life and a resurrection right there. Uh, the next one we like to number eight is regeneration. Now, a lot of folks may not know what this term is. Regeneration, a giving of new life is found in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Now, we want to, we'll read maybe some of this, Titus, a little bit later in the message, but right now we just want verse, verse 5. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 starts by saying, Not by works of righteousness. Now, there may be a lot of things in this verse that you don't understand. There may be a lot of things in this verse that I don't understand. But you did understand that he said not by works of righteousness, didn't you? You did understand that, didn't you? Not by works of righteousness. It's not by works of righteousness. You say, why do you keep repeating yourself? Because preachers are telling you it's because of your righteousness. And here it very plainly says, not by works of righteousness. Which we have done. But. According to his mercy. He saved us. By the washing of regeneration. And renewing. Of the Holy Ghost. You see in John 3.8. In John 3.3. 3, in John chapter 3. Verse 3. and John chapter 3. Verse 5. When he said that a man must be born again of water. And of the Spirit. He's not talking about two separate things in your life. You have to be careful with this. He's not talking that you must be baptized. And that you must get the the Pentecostal blessing of the Holy Ghost. That's not what that text says. When he says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. The Greek word and there is the Greek word kai. K-A-I. Meaning even The same are also. So what Jesus is saying is. Except a man be born of water. Even of the spirit. Cannot see the kingdom of God. The birth of the spirit. Was not the falling of Pentecost. The birth of the spirit is what's addressed right here in Titus chapter 3 verse 5. The washing of regeneration. The renewing of the Holy Ghost. Except A man be born by the Spirit. And by the way, that term born again in John 3, if you'll look in your little center column Bible, it tells you that that being born again is born from above. That it's a birth that comes from above. It's not something that comes from down here. It's something that comes from above. It is a washing of regeneration, a giving of life. Number nine. And by the way, these, these may not be the only terms in the scriptures, but they're the terms that I've found. There may be more. Number nine, I think, is fairly fascinating, though. And I, I may spend a little, little bit on this one. This one's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, the third verse. This I'd like to notice here. Let me turn over there real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says in uh, verse 3 of this, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, He's telling this church at Corinth that they are something. He says, "You are the epistle of Christ. You are ministered by us." So, what's Paul's responsibility to the church at Corinth? He ministers to this church. That's what the text says, right? Some of y'all looking a little confused at me. What's your point, preacher? Keep reading. Well, what is what is an epistle? Epistle is a book or a letter written by the apostles, right? You have the epistle of Paul to the Romans, the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, something written by somebody to someone else. He says, You're the epistle of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. What's well, fascinating, isn't it? He's talking about something that has been done. Now, let's let's go ahead and clear this up. All of these all of these words are not the same, right? A creation is not a birth. A birth is not a circumcision. A circumcision is not a translation. Translation is not a resurrection. They're not the same, correct? But what do they have in common? The one thing that they have in common is you have an active person and an inactive person. You have an active person and a person being acted upon is what you have. When God created, God acted upon nothing and created the world. A circumcision is a doctor acting upon a patient. And those who were dead, being resurrected, you have the life-giving voice of God acting upon those who were dead. You have an active and an inactive person. And that's exactly what irresistible grace is. You have the active God acting upon the inactive. So if you're going to describe the new birth, You have to describe it in such a manner as all these terms harmonize with each other. They're not separate from each other. They harmonize with each other from the standpoint, somebody acts, which is God. Somebody is inactive, which is us. And he acts upon us and something happens. Here he says, you're manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. Written not with ink. And not, what did he say here? Not uh, in tables of stone. What does that remind you of? The what? Ten Commandments. That's exactly right. Moses goes up on top of the mountain. He takes these rocks up there. And God with his finger wrote in those tables. Moses didn't write it. God wrote it. God, with His finger, wrote in those tables, handed it to Moses. You, in like manner, are the epistle of Christ. You're not written with ink. And you're not written by me. You're written by the Spirit of God in your heart. He takes the initiative to write in you that you belong to Him. Now look at this also. It says that you are manifestly declared. Now manifest. We think about something that comes to maybe fruition. Or something that comes into view. You know. People talk about ghosts that manifest themselves. Let's kind of break that down a little more simply though. You're manifestly declared. Any of you ever driven a truck? Any of you ever driven or delivered cargo, what does the driver have? He has a driver's manifest. He has a cargo manifest. That ship leaves port over here, travels across the ocean, and when it gets to the docking station, you're to present your your manifest, your cargo manifest, and the man at the dock wants to know what's on the ship. Well, what's on the ship's on this piece of paper. And they check this piece of paper and they check every box, every container. <coughs> <coughs> They check every container on there. And if there's one container on that ship that's not on this paper, they want to know where it came from. Because something illegal has happened. And if there's something on this paper that ain't on this ship, somebody's in trouble because something has been lost that belongs to the owner of that ship. Does this make any sense? When God's people get to heaven... They'll be manifestly declared because Lamb's book of life will be opened up and everybody that's in that book better be standing in front of God. If somebody ain't there that Jesus Christ died for, somebody's in trouble. Because the owner of the ship ain't getting what he paid for. And if there's somebody else there that ain't in that book, you ain't sticking around. Because you come up some other way than that parable that Jesus talks about. Somebody that climbs up another way, comes in another way. He will be found and he'll be rooted out. So the very idea that the Armenian doctrine, that God just wants everybody to be saved and at the end of the day he's just going to get what he wants, violates the principles of just common sense to start with. And secondly, it violates principles of God's word. You are manifestly declared. You are written, not only in the Lamb's book of life, but the Bible tells us we're written in the palms of His hand. That you are the children of God. In opposition to this doctrine that we teach, maybe something termed obstructible grace, Or decisional regeneration. It is the teaching that man makes the choice or the decision. If he will or will not be saved. That Thus he may either receive God's grace and get saved. Which by the way. The term get saved is not found anywhere in God's book. Nowhere in the scriptures are we ever told to get saved. Some of y'all kind of looking at me goofy like y'all didn't know that did you? It's not found in... I, I dare you. Try me out. Um, break out your little calculators or your little, your little concordances in, on your little electronic mobile devices and see if there's a phrase anywhere in the New Testament that says you must get saved. The, the, the word is not get saved. The term is be saved. I'll get that in a minute. So the decisional regeneration or the obstructible grace is that it's left up to man to make the decision, and that if he so chooses, he may then thwart God's plan for his life, obstructing all efforts of God to save him. Now my question is: is if a man can thwart God's effort to save him, all logic would dictate that the same man could thwart God's Decision to condemn Him to an eternal hell. Right? I mean, if I can thwart God's effort to save me, can I not thwart God's effort to condemn me? Oh, no. Heaven's by your choice. Hell's by God's choice. Now, isn't that just the dumbest explanation for for theology? Why is it that theological men, religious men are satisfied with sending a man to hell without ever asking the man, do you want to go? But He won't take them to heaven on the same principle. I mean, is that, that too deep for y'all? Uh, did, I, did I explain that well enough? Sometimes what's in my brain doesn't come out my mouth right. Right. Now... I kind of try to give a little bit of thought to this because anytime you, you approach this subject, then the subject of belief comes up. Belief and unbelief. And I, I'm thinking maybe maybe when I'm done with this we may just have uh, we may have a, a message on belief and unbelief. Yeah, I think I think probably we need to do that. Because the question is whether or not belief is the cause of salvation or whether belief is the evidence of salvation. It's my contention that belief is the evidence of salvation as taught to us in Galatians chapter 5 that faith which is evident in belief is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit one of those ninefold manner of fruit is faith. We often think about you know, I've got an apple which is the fruit of an apple tree and I can't have an apple without having an apple tree first. But then I thought something else. I thought a man attempts to do something, and whether he's successful or a failure, we would would look at the fruits of his labor. You know that term, right? What are the fruits of your labor? In other words, you tried to do something, what did it produce? Well, what is the fruit of the Spirit? What are the works of the Spirit? Spirit failure? Is there any time in the Bible where it says that a fruit of the Spirit is failure? Is there anything that the Spirit cannot do? Now I know there are sometimes things that God will not do. And there's some things that Jesus will not do. Is there, that I, that's not what I asked you. I said is, is there anything he cannot do? Faith is a gift that comes from God. It is not in man to start with. It comes from God. So, you know. Uh, and by the way, when you think about this subject of belief and decisions, this this was the argument that the devil made in the garden to our first parents that if you'll just partake of this fruit, you can be wise and you can have enough sense to know the difference between right and wrong. And preachers are still telling people that today. You've got enough sense to know the difference between right and wrong. You know, what do you think about that? I, i got a question for you. How can a man, you and me, who is tainted by sin. Anybody, is there anybody here not tainted with sin? Is there anybody here who doesn't have a problem with sin? Is there anybody in here whose judgment is not tainted by sin? Not a one of us. Sin afflicts everybody in here. So how can a man who is tainted by sin make a wiser decision than Adam who didn't know what sin was? He can't. So see, now we got to go all the way back when you're thinking about this concept of irresistible grace and why it is so important to understand the concept of depravity, right? You see how all this, all this sort of kind of meshes together. It's the warp and weave of the fabric, you know, that, that makes one long coat. You, think about this. If you're going to review depravity and the effects of sin let's say a child falls off a swing set or a child falls out of a tree or a grown man cleaning his gutters falls off the roof of his house. It would be reasonable to suspect that the extent of his injuries that he experiences would dictate dictate the level of help he needs to recover. I say that right? Someone falls, the injury he experiences dictates the level of help he needs to recover. So, if I'm standing up here on this pulpit, I jump down on the ground, land on my feet, no harm done, right? All i got to do is climb back up here. Uh, Jump down off this pulpit, miss the landing, fall on my bottom. What do I need to do? Just stand back up, dust myself off, climb back up here. See, no harm yet, right? Not too bad of a fall yet, right? Child may fall out of a tree, fall off a swing set. I may fall down, get the breath knocked out of me. (gasps) What do I need? Possibly a little bit of time to recover, rest. But ultimately, I just need a little bit of time to recover. Then I just get back, stand up back where I was. How about if I fall and get knocked unconscious? What do I need? A little bit of time to recover. May or may not need a doctor at that point. Still, it's just time and then the ability to climb back up here. What if I fall and sprain my ankle? Need a little bit more time to recover. Might need a doctor to bandage it up. But still, I've got the ability, after time and a little bit of help, to climb back up here. What if I fall and break my leg? Definitely gonna need a doctor on that one. Definitely gonna need a little bit more time. Still got the ability after all that's done, climb back up here. What if I fall and break my neck? Probably gonna end up dead. At that point, I don't need time and I don't need the doctor. Need the coroner. I don't need help. I don't need time. At that point, I need life. Everything I've given to you, every every one of these little instances I've just given to you can be found in most religious churches anywhere that all man needs is a little bit of time, the right understanding, a little better education about himself, and he can dust himself off and climb back up to God. What I'm trying to tell you is that the Bible tells you you're the last thing. That the fall didn't hurt you. It didn't bruise you. It didn't cripple you. The fall killed you. And you don't need a decision. You don't need an ambulance. You don't need the counter. You don't need the undertaker. You need the upper taker is what you need. You don't need a steak and a baked potato which I might when the sermon's over with. But you don't need a steak and a baked potato. What you need is life. And that life does not come through your your decision. That life comes from the Holy Spirit alone. That comes from Him and Him alone. You see, when Jesus said in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, you notice He did not say except a man get born again. It said except a man be born again. You say, well, what's the difference? All right. Except a man B-16, he cannot legally drive. Except a man B-18, cannot legally vote. You want me to continue on? Go down to the amusement park. What does the sign say outside the roller coaster? You must be this tall to ride this ride. Now, are all three of those things telling you that that's a condition you've got to go out here and to accomplish? Or are all three of those things telling you that that's a condition you've got to be in? That that is something that happens to you? Jesus Christ Himself asked this question Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to His stature? All you short people out there, all you short people out there, you know, all you microwaves. You want to be taller? Just decide to be taller. Just make it up in your mind to be taller. Just be willing to be taller. How many of y'all willing to be taller? All right, all you broke poor people out yonder. All y'all willing to be rich? Oh, just believe that you're rich then. Don't, it don't work that way, does it? When Jesus said, except a man, be born again these are not conditions that he must strive to achieve they are conditions that the man must be in except a man is born again see there's a little phrase that's found throughout the scriptures Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is one of them Titus chapter 3 is the other one there's a little phrase that's found throughout the scriptures that I think a lot of people skip over In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Pretty ugly description of man by nature, isn't it? What does verse 4 begin with? But God. <laughs> but God. Not but man. Not but the preacher. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together... With Christ, by grace, you're saved. What made the difference? But God. You know, we read from Titus chapter 3 earlier. We read verse 5. Let's go back there and let's start reading in verse 3. Titus chapter 3. Verse 3. says, For we ourselves also... We're sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This is the depravity of man at its best. If you want to know what the resume of man is outside of God, I just read it to you. Hateful, hating one another. See, we got to be careful with this. People think that they can legislate morality in America. I assure you, I assure you, you will never legislate racism out of this world. Now, you may legislate it out of a nation's rules, but you'll never legislate it outside of a man's heart. You know, you may have public bathrooms. You may have public clubs but human beings by their own wicked heart will separate themselves. What's that next phrase? Verse 4 But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness. When did God change you? When you were just such a loving, kind, caring person? When He looked at you and said, Why, well, you know what? Heaven just cannot do without this person. That person has achieved so much. Don't want to let His works go to waste. No. Nope. God came to us when we were hateful and hating one another not by works of our righteousness but by His mercy it is god that made the difference not the preacher not your mama not your daddy god that made the difference you see the new birth occurs at different times to different people but it's always an operation of the holy spirit john the baptist in luke chapter 1 before he was even born naturally into this world, leaped for joy at the sound of of Mary, the mother of Christ. You remember that? Watch watch this pattern. In Luke chapter 1, verse 41, John the Baptist leaped for joy at the mother of Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth, his mother, was filled with joy and filled with the Holy Ghost when he did that. David says in Psalm 22 and verse 9, but Thou art He that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. He, he said when I was an infant. Just barely born. Thou gave me hope. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. You Remember he walks out and he says "Is not this great Babylon that I've created. He says, while the words were yet warm in his mouth, there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou shalt be driven from men. Thou shalt go out in the field for seven times, whether that's seven years or seven days or seven weeks. It doesn't matter. Something's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't matter what his decision is. The Word of God comes down and says, you're going to lose everything you've got. You're going to be driven out. Your hair's going to grow out like eagle's feathers and your nails like bird claws. But in Daniel 4... In verse 34, it says, at the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. God gave him something. I believe that Daniel 4 shows us the new birth of King Nebuchadnezzar. I think he was quickened, because no man is going to say, I praise and extol and honor the King of glory who lives forever except the man who's born again. He certainly wasn't looking for God. Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 was not looking for God. But Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 and spoke unto him and He said, Lord, who art Thou? He said, I'm Jesus whom Thou persecutest. He said, what would Thou have me to do? And the Bible says also in Acts 9 and verse 7 that the men who were with Saul... Heard a voice, but saw no man. Right? They heard something, but it didn't affect them in the way that it affects Saul of Tarsus. Why? Because it was a particular call. It wasn't to everybody in the crowd in general. It was to Saul of Tarsus specifically. thief on the cross is a prime example of this. In Luke 23, there was no preacher, no soul winner, no baptism. But in his last hours on earth, something happened to change him from a man who was ridiculing and cursing Christ to a man who turned and said to him, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I've just given you examples right there of people from the womb to nearly the tomb. That the Holy Spirit, upon His good pleasure. I was tempted to say, I'm tempted to say from the very top of the rung of thieves down to the bottom of the rung of politicians. You know, I often say that, you know, from the president down to the garbage collector. But I think I'd like to turn that around and say from the garbage collector all the way down to the politicians. (laughs) Holy Spirit of God has the ability to move howsoever he pleases. The call of God is always affectionate. The call of God always gets the job done. My time is running out very quickly here, so let me just read to you what we've got here. Uh, You've been very patient in your attention this morning, and I do not want to insult you. So let me just read to you these scriptures, and you write them down, and you go home and study them. The calling of God is always effectual. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Like that, don't you? Here's another one. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, beginning with verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Right? For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. What did that centurion just say? That the word of God is always effectual. The effectual call always precedes the gospel call. 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel does not bring life. The gospel tells you about the one who did bring life. The gospel does not abolish death. The gospel tells you about the one who did abolish death. There is an effectual call. That's described in verse 8. That God has called us with a holy calling. And there is a gospel calling to obedience. That would be described in verse 10. Wherein we get light and understanding. The effectual call gives you life. The gospel gives you light and understanding. And these, both of these uh, coincide then with this final point that we will make. That the effectual call is followed or can only be followed Or the gospel call, excuse me. The effectual call is followed by the gospel call. And it's in John chapter 11 when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. John chapter 11 and verse 43 says, when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. That is a specific, definite call. It's important to understand this, that Lazarus wasn't buried in a hole by himself, like a lot of us will be. In that day they'd carve out holes in rocks and mountains and they'd bury them in the back all the way to the front. So it would be a tomb occupied by very many people. Lazarus is in there with a whole bunch of other dead folk. And Lazarus is the only one that comes forward because Lazarus is the only one Jesus spoke to says that He that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes which also tells you that the only way that He came out of that tomb was He floated out of the tomb. Yeah. He was bound hand and foot with grave clothes so He didn't hop out and He didn't waddle out. He had to float out under the power of God. The effectual call. Then in verse 44... The end of it, it says, Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. Now you have the gospel call. You have the gospel call given to those who've had the effectual call. The gospel call only means something to those born of the Spirit. So we say to you, if you've been born of the Spirit, and God has touched your heart, Come forth. Confess your faith in Christ. And be baptized. That's your responsibility. Your responsibility is not. To satisfy your sin debt before God. Jesus did that. Your responsibility is to say thank you. By getting just a little bit wet. Right back here in the back. And on a good hot day summer August day getting a little wet probably feel a little good this has been what I consider a fundamental point in the doctrine of grace that the effectual call of the spirit always accomplishes what it set out to do thank you for your good and patient attention this morning